0: We are at the end of the book of Esther, Uh, Esther chapter 9 and 10. Chapter 9 is very long, chapter 10 is very short. And uh, we are finishing the book. Uh, It has been an exciting uh, journey. I hope Esther has uh, uh, been meaningful to you, and I hope you've learned. uh, It's very different than what uh, maybe you expected when we entered in here. But uh, we are going to read this uh, as we go through it because of its length. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, as always for giving us your word and making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us understanding, help us to see how you work, help us to understand what you have done for us, and help us to show that to others. For all of this, we need your grace, and so we ask for that this morning by your Spirit, that you would give us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, I entitled this sermon, Three Days of Destiny, um, because the last chapter of Esther takes place over three days, uh, so it was uh, a lot of thought went into that. Um, there's also a documentary film by that title that deals with one of the most defining moments in American history, the Battle of Gettysburg. But rather than focus on the documentary, I've decided to use this morning the more commonly known film, uh, Gettysburg. I've been waiting for this Sunday. Uh, Because Gettysburg is my all-time favorite movie, and it's based on my all-time favorite novel, The Killer Angels by uh, Michael Shara. I'm guessing I've seen this movie more than 20 times and saw half of it again last night. Uh, And many of the lines from the movie can be heard uh, in my house, uh, particularly when uh, the older children are home. Um, They've been subjected to it uh, more. when my brother-in-law Bill was alive, we watched this annually together. And uh, this is, has a lot of meaning to me. I've been to the battlefield a number of times. And when I was in the military, I once led the officers of my battalion on a battlefield walk over that terrain. And, and 10 years ago, uh, on a much shorter uh, walk, led the officers of this church. Uh, on a walk of that terrain. The movie Gettysburg is a four hour depiction of the historical and personal events surrounding the decisive battle of the Civil War. And the movie features thousands of Civil War reenactors who marched over the same ground that the Union and Confederate armies fought on. Uh, as I said, the film is based around the three days of battle at Gettysburg, the three bloodiest days in American history and is surrounded by the speeches of the various commanding officers and the personal reflections of the soldiers who fought there. On the first day of the movie, uh, it explores setting the stage for the battle, specifically focusing on Brigadier General John Buford, the Union cavalry commander who selects the battlefield. And there is a powerful scene when Buford, who's brilliantly played by Sam Elliott, decides on a unique strategy when he talks to Colonel Devin, his second-in-command. He says, you know what's going to happen here in the morning. The whole Reb Army is going to be here. They'll move through this town, occupy those hills on the other side, and when our people get here, Lee will have the high ground. There will be the devil to pay. The high ground. Meade will come in slowly, cautiously, new to command. They'll be on his back in Washington, wiring hot with messages, attack, attack. So he will set up a ring around these hills. And when Lee's army is nicely entrenched behind fat rocks on the high ground, Meade will finally attack if he can coordinate the army. Straight up the hillside, out in the open, in that gorgeous field of fire. We will charge valiantly and be butchered valiantly. And afterwards, men in tall hats and gold watch fobs will thump their chests and say what a brave charge it was. Devon, I've led a soldier's life, and I've never seen anything as brutally clear as this. And therefore, John Buford sets up the battle with a series of strategic withdrawals through the town of Gettysburg that forces the higher-ranking Union generals to accept and occupy the high ground. It is one of the most pivotal decisions of the battle. The focus on the second day is on Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain in case you didn't know what he looked like. <laughs> in my personal opinion, the greatest hero of the Civil War, in this movie played by Jeff Daniels in what I consider to be the high point of his film career. And the movie follows Chamberlain's regiment the 20th Maine and their historic defense of Little Round Top. And as he sets his men into position, Chamberlain who's from Bowdoin College in Maine, gathers his officers around him and says, gentlemen, the 83rd Pennsylvania, 44th New York, and 16th Michigan will be moving in on our right. But if you look to our left, you will see there is no one there. It's because we're the end of the line. The Union Army stops here. We are the flank. Do you understand, gentlemen? We cannot retreat. We cannot withdraw. We're going to have to be stubborn today. So you put the boys in position. You tell them to stay down, pile the rocks up high, get the best protection you can. The Reb Army is going to swing around. It's it's going to come up right through that notch right over there. It'll move under the cover of the trees. Try to get around the flank. Gentlemen. We are the flank. Gentlemen, God, go with you. And he sends his officers off with a salute. If you know anything about the Battle of Little Round Top, you know Joshua Chamberlain earned the Medal of Honor that day. Because his unit, the 20th Maine, ran out of ammunition. And he ordered a bayonet charge down the hill. The last third of the film follows the preparation for and the execution of Pickett's charge. In in this part of the film, the focus goes to General James Longstreet, affectionately known as Pete. And Longstreet, played by Tom Berenger, has serious doubts about the battle plan that General Lee has laid out. And he approaches Lee with his reservations. And Robert E. Lee, played by Martin Sheen, replies to Longstreet, General, Soldiering has one great trap. To be a good soldier, you must love the army. To be a good commander, you must be willing to order the death of the thing you love. We do not fear our own death, you and I, but there comes a time we are never quite prepared for so many to die. Oh, we do expect the occasional empty chair, a salute to fallen comrades. But this war goes on and on, and the men die, and the price gets ever higher. We are prepared to lose some of us, but we are never prepared to lose all of us. And there is the great trap, General. When you attack, you must hold nothing back. You must commit yourself totally. We are adrift here in a sea of blood, and I want it to end. I want this to be the final battle. Well, as you know, it was not the final battle. In fact, Gettysburg is universally regarded as the high watermark of the Confederacy. And the South never recovered from the devastating losses. And the war dragged on for two more very long years. And with the arrival of Sam Grant as the commanding general of the Union armies, the South was slowly crushed through attrition and its inability to resupply its troops. When Robert E. Lee finally surrendered at Appomattox, Ulysses S. Sam Grant selected now Major General, General Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain to receive the surrender. And it was Chamberlain who is revered even in the South who made the decision to let the Confederate soldiers keep their guns and horses so they could return safely to their farms and families. Three days of destiny. Battles so bloody that even today we consider those fields hallowed ground. The Bible is full of similar battles. The Bible is full of descriptions of battlefields littered with the dead and dying. And today we come to one of those. Three days, thousands killed, the battle dragged out, the ground awash in a sea of blood. And behind it all was our own dear, sweet, quiet, gentle, submissive Queen Esther. Last week, we introduced the idea of the great reversal. Common theme seen uh, throughout literature, art, opera, musicals, movies, where we see everything going wrong and all seems lost when suddenly, at the last minute, the tables are turned, the wrongs are righted, and the story ends where we hoped it would. (coughs) Last week, we saw that in a small way in chapter 8. We really saw it in decree. It was determined what would happen. Esther confronted the uh, wicked Haman in front of the king. Haman was impaled on his own gallows. Esther was awarded Haman's estate, and Mordecai replaced Haman as prime minister in the empire. And what a reversal of fortunes, both for Esther and for Mordecai. But Esther and Mordecai were by no means content with this outcome. While they had achieved tremendous personal victories, tragedy is still staring them in the face in the form of a law granting permission to anyone in the kingdom to slaughter Jews on the 13th day of the month Adar, a date which was rapidly approaching. Esther begged the king to revoke that law, but he couldn't. It was a law of the Medes of the Persians, and it was irrevocable. But King Ahasuerus himself offers a resolution to the dilemma. He suggests another degree, a decree, a conflicting decree, uh, also irrevocable, that would give the Jewish people the right of self-defense. And when the Jewish people all over the empire learned about the new law, they rejoiced and were glad. And many non-Jews claimed to be Jews, mostly out of fear that the Jews would prevail when that day arrived. And this morning we come to that day arriving in chapter 9 and discover their fear of the Jews was well-founded. This week we see that what was decreed now happens in reality. The decree is implemented and the battle begins. It's time for the great reversal to take place. And while this is long and somewhat violent, it's this chapter of the book of Esther that makes Esther so important in biblical history. So that's where we start. And we begin with the reversal described. The reversal describes, verse one. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahas Yorias to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, I'm not going to pronounce all those names, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces?' Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. The fateful day has arrived, the very day Haman has chosen by Lot on which to kill every Jew in the empire. But now, of course, it is also the day in which the Jews, uh, Jewish people are allowed to defend themselves. And the story makes it clear the Jews quickly gain the upper hand. By the way, this may be the single most difficult portion in the entire book of Esther to deal with. We've already struggled with the apparently secular nature of the story, namely that God has left out, or at least his name is, and we struggle with the fact that Esther seemed to thrive in the beauty contest to choose the next queen, hiding her faith, auditioning before the king in a manner that raises serious moral questions. However, here we're confronted with the killing of over 75,000 people by the Jews. And even though it's in self-defense, let's be honest, it takes a long time to kill 75,000 people. And remember, this is done with the sword and the lance and the axe. No machine guns, no artillery, no air force. So we're forced to admit that the kind of killing we see here in Esther is both troubling, and yet biblically it is not unique. We find it elsewhere in the Bible, and we have to do something with it. So let me ask you what appears to be a strange question. Is this a case of holy war? As you read through the book of Joshua, for example, you find God ordering the Israelites to practice holy war against the inhabitants of the Holy Land, the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Stalagmites, Stalactites, etc. Just seeing if you're paying attention. It's not because God's bloodthirsty and it's not a racial thing. It's because the peoples of the land were evil and wicked beyond comprehension. And God knew if they were allowed to remain in the land, the Israelites would intermarry with them, adopt their customs, and become idolaters like they were. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. That's why the Jews were sent into exile. But Jewish holy war It's a very different thing from Muslim jihad or even examples of genocide that we've seen in our own time, like in Rwanda. Jewish holy war had nothing to do with hatred or racial superiority or political power or even economic advantage. It had everything to do with God's people maintaining a lifestyle of holiness. Furthermore, here in Esther, it's clear the killing is entirely defensive in nature. There are some redeeming factors to consider here. Uh, Our first hint that this killing is defensive uh, comes in verse two, the Jews assembled to attack those who sought their harm. And then in verse five, it stated, the Jews struck all their enemies. There's no indiscriminate killing. And then uh, verse 16, says they gathered to defend their lives. Second, three times it states that they laid no hand on the plunder in verses 10, 15 and 16. And this is significant because Mordecai's edict specifically permitted them to take the plunder, but they refused to do so. And third, in verse 6 we're told they only killed men, meaning males apparently because only men attacked them. But once again, Mordecai's edict specifically permitted them to kill the women and the children of their enemies, but again, they didn't do it. Maybe you're wondering why Mordecai wrote those provisions into the edict in the first place. Um, and certainly the Jewish people had no intent to carry them out. And I suspect the answer is he was simply copying the provisions of Haman's original law. And if he was going to instill the appropriate level of fear in their enemies, that had to be included. But the Jews refrained from actually carrying them out. They killed no women and children, and they took no plunder. And I think this is all evidence that this, in fact, was holy war. If you remember, uh, why was Saul stripped of his kingship? And this came into play because Haman was an Agagite. And if you remember the story from 1 Samuel, Saul was stripped of his kingship. He's supposed to be fighting holy war, and he disobeyed God and took plunder from his enemies, not to mention allowing some of them to live, which allowed the descendants of their enemies to keep coming after the Jews for centuries until now. The holy war that Saul failed to complete, Esther and Mordecai complete centuries later. However, there's a strange interaction here between Esther and the king in verse 12. The king says, uh, "The king said to Queen Esther and Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? And it sounds like he's got a scorecard. He's impressed with the death toll, you know, and kind of like this is a giant video game and he's winning." And so he says, what's your wish? It shall be granted you. What's your request? It shall be fulfilled. It seems to think Esther has something else on her mind, and she does indeed. But instead of asking for a fur coat or another diamond tiara, Esther asks for more time for the killing to continue. One more day for the Jews to mop up the opposition. And she asks for the 10 sons of Haman who are already dead to be impaled on the gallows in public. Dear, sweet, Esther. (laughs) Wouldn't you like to bring her home to mom? However, I think Esther is asking for another day because of a very realistic assessment on the importance of ridding the the empire of people uh, who are anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. And if some are allowed to remain, they'll just show their faces later and the Jews are going to have to fight this battle all over again. So the killing continues until it's finally done and the last battle's been fought. But then, rather than returning to their homes and recovering from the fight, the Jews are told it's not enough to achieve victory over their enemies. They must also celebrate that victory. And so we see the reversal celebrated. Verses 16 to 32, the reversal celebrated. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness therefore the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another and Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahas Yorias, both near and far obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and the month which had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Let's jump down to verse 28. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahas Urias in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Now celebration is a very common theme in the, in the scriptures. You know how often celebration is urged upon God's people or even required in the scriptures. Just as you go through the Bible, you see it over and over again. After the Egyptian chariots were buried in the Dead Sea, Moses led the people in a song of praise uh, to God in Exodus 15. After the victory over Jericho, Uh, Joshua led the people in a great celebration to renew their covenant with God, Joshua 8. After the Lord delivered the people under Deborah, the judge, she led them in thanksgiving and praise, Judges 5. David raised money for the temple, as Frank mentioned earlier. He led the people in a huge celebration, 1 Chronicles 29. When Zerubbabel, I love that name, and the exiles returned from Persia, they laid the foundation for the temple. They celebrated Ezra 3, and when they completed the temple, they celebrated again in Ezra 6. And 75 years later, when Nehemiah led the people to build a wall around the city, at its dedication, they had a tremendous celebration, Nehemiah 12. Many of the Psalms are calls for celebration, for the deliverance that God has brought to his people. And all the required feasts of Israel, Passover, first fruits, unleavened bread, tabernacles, trumpets, and atonement are really calls upon the people to remember the deliverance of the Lord. But here we have a new feast, the Feast of Purim. Is that a divinely instituted feast or is this a human one? I mean, Moses got his commands direct from the Lord in Leviticus 23. But here in Esther, the Feast of Purim isn't attributed to God at all. Verse 20, Mordecai recorded these things, obliging them to keep these days. Verse 27, the Jews firmly obligated themselves. Verse 29, we're told that Esther wrote, with full authority. There's nothing here to indicate that the institution of Purim was ordered by God. On the other hand, as we've often seen, God's not mentioned at all in this book, even when his fingerprints are obvious. However, Purim does seem to be in keeping with the purpose of the other biblical feasts. I put it in the same category as Hanukkah, which is mentioned just once in scripture in John chapter 10. Neither feast is commanded directly by God, but both commemorate a great deliverance that was surely arranged by God, and thus both are legitimately practiced by the Jewish people. Now how important are annual celebrations for the people of God? I think they're very important, or God wouldn't have given so much space to them. I think it's critical to the people of God to regularly observe days of remembrance. Celebrations like Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter, and even those the celebrations with a, uh, clearly a less biblical focus, like Memorial Day or Mother's Day or Father's Day. Even the observation of the Lord's Day each week helps to establish a rhythm in our life that makes God's fingerprints more obvious. Now, as Rick told you, two weeks from today, we're having a celebration. And it's going to be an opportunity to express with our hearts and mouths thanksgiving and praise to God for his amazing faithfulness in our lives, both individually and corporately. And that reminds me of the focus of this feast. Mordecai specifies four things that should be done. Verse 22, they should make them days of feasting and gladness, Days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And Purim got its name because Haman had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pure or the lot for their ruin and destruction. And the plural of that word is Purim. It's been effectively argued that the point of the name is to communicate that the lot of God's people couldn't be determined by casting lots before false gods. Only the Lord God determines the lot of his people. And finally, we're told the feast is to be remembered and observed by the Jewish people in every generation, by every family, in every province, in every, every city, and it must never cease. And it hasn't. If you've been around Jewish communities much, you're aware that Purim is a favorite time of the year. Families read the entire book of Esther uh, and, and as a family devotional, and the children boo when Haman's name is mentioned and cheer when Mordecai's name is mentioned. And they give gifts and they celebrate. But even during the Holocaust, in fact, I think especially then, Jews wrote out copies of Esther from memory. And the significance of its message was not lost on the Nazis who would kill on the spot any Jew found with a copy in the prison camps. And yet they continued to share the story of Esther because in it they found assurance and hope that they and not their enemies would eventually triumph against all expectations. And that feast is still kept. We're to celebrate God's deliverance, whether that's in your life personally, our life as a church, or for all Christianity. But then there's a strange twist at the end of the book. We get this little short chapter of three verses, and I think it's the reversal reconsidered. It says, King Ahas Yorias imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of his high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. As I said earlier, wasn't our devotional on Esther amazing? I really, really liked it, and I hope you'll find ways to continue to use it. If you need additional copies, let me know. I want to quote from that as we wrap up this book. The final chapter of the book of Esther shows some things put back right and others unchanged. In terms of the good, we see Haman's wicked plan was foiled by God. He was brought low while Mordecai was lifted up. While Esther began uh, with blending in and keeping a low profile, in the end, she was publicly showing solidarity with her people, (laughs) pleading on their behalf. But chapter 10 reminds us that at the end of the day, they were still left with an evil king on the throne whose whims and and selfishness controlled the lives of the people in his kingdom. And the story ends with the king imposing a tax on all the land. We have pretty good reason to doubt that this is uh, for some kind of public works project. Most likely this is for the king just doing what he's always done, making couches out of gold and waging war to expand his territory. So why does the story end this way? This is a reminder of a simple truth that until the day that Christ returns and God puts all things right, there may be some happy endings, but there will never be a time when every loose end is tied up, when every wrong is righted, where everything and everyone is made right. The kind of happily ever after is rightly reserved for fairy tales and for the culmination that all those fairy tales point us towards. And of course what they point us towards is the final reversal. Talking about the amazing reversal that took place in the life of Christ, there are uh, many, many aspects of it. I've listed four there in your outline, each of which has a parallel to the book of Esther. Christ left the glories of heaven to become one of us. Talk about a reversal. We heard earlier, Phoebe read Philippians 2, making himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, humbling himself, became one of us, not to wage holy war, but to pay the penalty for our sins. Sadly, the Bible makes it clear when his enemies persist in their opposition and their efforts to kill him, uh, they'll be judged severely, but not until they've been extended every opportunity to make peace with him. Second, he rose from the dead to provide assurance that his people will never be defeated by the grave. It's another amazing reversal. Surely Satan uh, exulted when his archenemy died on the cross. <clears throat> Satan had battled him uh, forever, for all eternity. Tried to, remember, use Herod to destroy him when he was a child. Drove his parents into exile in Egypt and throughout his ministry stirred up people against him, from the Romans to the religious leaders, and thought he succeeded when Jesus was crucified, but then three days later, that defeat was turned into an amazing victory over sin and death. And third, we know that Christ will come again to destroy the evil empire once and for all and establish his righteous kingdom. You remember we went through Revelation and that great verse in Revelation 11, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. No other kingdom will ever overthrow him. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords will reign forever and ever. And last, Christ is going to put on a feast, uh, an amazing feast, the feast par excellence, and we'll become Purim people. The book of Esther is full of banquets and feasts. There's actually ten mentioned in the ten chapters. But there is coming a feast to end all feasts, a banquet to end all banquets, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And friends, the king of the only empire that will last forever has invited you to come to his banquet. And it's going to be a time of happiness and joy and gladness and feasting and celebrating. And you need to accept his invitation. And you do that by acknowledging your sin and receiving his son as your savior. I want to close with a final observation related to this series. I know we've hit our time. Be patient, please. I subtitled this, the title of the series was for such a time as this, but the subtitle was The Sovereign Stewardship of God. And I pointed out when we started the book of Esther that we needed to be reminded that we cannot at any moment know the significance of world events or even the significance of ordinary events in our lives. The book of Esther calls us to trust in the power and presence of God even and perhaps especially uh, when he seems to be absent. And when we can't imagine how he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Because we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. And we can't see the end of the matter from the beginning. And the story of Esther assures us that we don't have to. Through his unknowable ways along paths that are dark and dangerous, God brings his people to a day when all creation will rejoice that our sorrow has been turned to joy and our mourning into gladness. I want to close where I started, as I often do. This time, again, with the words of Joshua Chamberlain. In the movie... Chamberlain's regiment the 20th Maine has given 120 soldiers from the 2nd Maine who have mutinied. They disbanded that unit. But these men had signed longer-term papers and they weren't allowed to leave, so they mutinied. And of course, being the only other regiment from Maine, these men were given to him. This is historical account. And he's given permission to shoot any of these men who don't cooperate with him. So they're brought to his unit. He agrees to meet with them. And when he does, he tells them this. I've heard about your situation. There's nothing I can do today. We're moving out in a few minutes. We'll be moving all day. I've been ordered to take you men with me. I'm told that if you don't come, I can shoot you. Well, you know, I won't do that. Maybe someone else will, but I won't. So that's that. Here's the situation. The whole Reb Army is up that road a ways waiting for us. This is no time for an argument, I tell you. We could surely use you fellows. You know who we are. But if you fight alongside us, there's a few things you must know. This regiment was formed last summer in Maine. There were a 1,000 of us then. There are less than 300 of us now. All of us volunteered to fight for the Union just as you did. Some came mainly because we were bored at home, thought this looked like fun. Some came because we were ashamed not to. Many of us came because it was the right thing to do, and all of us have seen men die. This is a different kind of army. If you look at history, you'll see men fight for for pay, or women, or some other kind of loot. They fight for land, power, or because a king leads them, or just because they like killing. But we're here for something new. This has not happened much. In the history of the world, we are an army out to set other men free. Mordecai could have given that speech. I think Joshua or David could have given that speech. In many ways, I think Jesus has given that speech. We are an army out to set other men free. That's why we do this. That's why we have this campaign. That's why we pray. The church is the army of the Lord and we are out to set other men free. That's what God has called us to do. That's why we need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. I'd like to... Close with the last prayer from our devotional. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do many right, you do right many wrongs in this lifetime. Thank you that you do deliver your people from many evils in this lifetime. Thank you, Father, that for those of us who have yet to see a happy ending, for the injustice and painful parts of our lives, that we can hold on to the hope that a day is coming when you set all things right. God, as we look out upon our world, we see things that are out of order, unjust rulers, unjust laws, unholy practices. And we pray for you to topple such rulers and overturn such laws and banish such practices. We pray particularly for the people of our congregation, that we would be a people who live with our lives anchored in the hope of eternity and grounded in good works in the present. Thank you for the book of Esther. Thank you for the lessons of providence and faithfulness and thanksgiving. Teach us these things. Enable us to believe these things. Give us the desire to act on what we believe. I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Before we sing our last song, Rick, I believe you have an announcement for us.
1: Well, leaders come in many different forms and sizes. It's not necessarily, uh, especially in this case, um, uh, who has the greatest paycheck. Um, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had someone come up to me, uh, only 15 years old, and he said, hey, Mr. Behrens, uh, you like my new jacket? He says, uh, I, I just bought this jacket. He says, Uh, I originally had saved up enough money to buy a nice leather jacket, but I decided to buy uh, um, something that wasn't leather, something that was less expensive in in order for me to give uh, what was left over to the campaign. And that was just so inspiring to me, to know that um, somebody that young would be a leader in our church that way. Um, So with that, uh, let me tell you what our leaders have committed to uh, so far two hundred and eighty two thousand seven hundred dollars um that is already over a third of uh, of what we've asked the lord to provide um, for this campaign can i pray real quick sure praise the lord for this always good. amen father lord thank you that you are faithful to us that you have been faithful to us from the start you are faithful to us in giving your son jesus and you are faithful uh, to our community, Lord, by uh, raising for us the resources to continue and to uh, uh, and to expand our ministries, Lord, we pray that um, this would uh, this leader offering would be an example to those um, uh, to those right now who are considering to give, Lord, and uh, just need to know that everyone that our leaders are behind this, Lord, I pray that you would. Um, You would be with us, Lord. Help us to humbly serve you and to joyfully serve and to lavishly give to you. In Jesus' name, amen.